Peace be with you. Uh, so we've been working our way uh, through the gospel of, of Matthew, and um, I'm, I'm not going to have an introduction today because uh, the first point uh, kind of invites a little bit of a, uh, a rehearsing of, of where we have been. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, you want to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 6, and uh, this is a section of scripture, uh, verses 9 through 13, specifically they're known as the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we got all the way to the end of chapter 7, uh, at the end of the calendar year, at the end of 2023. Uh, but we are revisiting uh, the Lord's Prayer for a few weeks here in the lead up to um, uh, Holy Week. And so uh, this is our third Sunday um, of uh, uh, investigating uh, the, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I'm hopeful that our journey through this, uh, uh, this, rich, this rich language that Jesus gave to his followers is, is uh, something that serves, serves our hearts as well. Uh, the phrase that we're looking at today is the phrase, your kingdom come. And as we get started, and kind of just, I guess, as the first point, uh, the, the first word in that phrase is the word your. So when you look at the word your, you know, you, you, it's a legitimate question to say, you know, your, wh- whose kingdom? Whose kingdom is this that we are praying about? And the answer is, it, it's, it's God's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. Uh, in, the, in the phrase just before this, just two phrases before this, uh, Jesus starts off this prayer by making sure it is that we know who we are praying to. And who, who Jesus says that we are praying to is our Father. He, he says, our Father who is in heaven. And he gives us this, this, this invitation or this recognition that the nature of our prayer life, that when you close your eyes and you begin to communicate, and we said a couple weeks ago that at least statistically, a huge percentage of people in our society say that they pray. A really huge percentage say that they actually pray every day. And it's a good question to ask, who are you praying to? Who is this one that maybe you expect to be listening? Or maybe you've created your own idea of who it is that you're talking to. But Jesus says when his followers pray, he wants them to say, our Father. And there's a recognition here. Uh, that Jesus is pointing to a a relationship, that he's identifying a family relationship, a a relationship of intimacy, where there's a recognition that the one that you're talking to is is your father. And as we went through that idea of our father, we we recognize that there's actually, the the Bible suggests that there's a way in which um, we are reunited to God so that we can rightly say our father. That we are, the Bible uses the idea of adoption, that we are adopted into the family of God through the person and work of Jesus. And when we run to Jesus, we are treated as Jesus is treated. You know, Jesus is is referred to as the second uh, person of the Trinity, uh, the, the Son of God. And if we've run to Jesus, then we're treated like Jesus is treated. We, we are invited into this family, and we become children of God. And these children then are invited to talk with their father, and to talk with their father openly and intimately. Uh, God is not far off. He is personal, and he is near. So our father, after Jesus says who it is that we're praying to, then he starts to move into what, like, how and what do we say? How do we talk to him? What, what do we talk to him about? And we saw the phrase, hallowed be your name. So how is it that we are talking to this father? Is we are recognizing that there is something not only personal and relational about the God that we're praying to, but there is something glorious and incredible 
about the God that we are praying to. Uh, a recognition that to, 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 to hallow something, it's not common language for us, but to hallow something is to make it holy. And even the word holy is a little complicated in our current cultural moment. And so a way to, to explain that might be to say that it's to make something special. It's to make it central. It's to make it the most important thing there is. And so Jesus says, when you pray to your father, one of the things that you're praying is, hallowed be your name. It's not saying that God's not glorious. It's saying, would the world experience God as glorious? Would I experience God as glorious? And so we pointed out the fact that there's a sense in a global way that we long for this. When we pray, our father, hallowed be your name, that there's a recognition that we want the whole world to hallow the name of God. We want every tribe and every nation, every tongue, uh, across the ocean and down your street. We want everyone to hallow the name of God, to see the beauty and the significance of God's name. But there's also a personal sense to this, that it's not just we want God's name to be hallowed out there. We want God's name to be hallowed in here, that every crack and crevice of my heart is is recognizing and and, and eager to have God be at the center, God be uh, treated as as special and as the most important thing. And so as as Jesus is unfolding this prayer, as he's revealing to his followers how to pray, he says, who is it that we're praying to? Who, Who is this your? Well, it's our Father in heaven, God the Father, whose name is unique and special. It it should be the centerpiece of life. That's that's the your. And Jesus is going to help us understand this even a little bit more this week uh, and and, and next week too. But that's just the first word, the word your. What what, what is this whole phrase? Let's keep working through this this whole phrase. The, The second word is kingdom. Your kingdom come. The word kingdom, I'm I'm not trying to assume what runs through your mind, but for most of us, maybe like um, uh, a movie that has like knights and kings and queens and the city wall and the city gates, and it's like, you know, this 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 is Camelot where King Arthur is the king. And when we think of a kingdom, we often think of borders and barriers. We think of perimeters. We think of a place. That, that, that's usually what runs through our minds in our current moment when we think about kingdom. But that's not what this word is suggesting. Uh, the, the Greek word for kingdom that's used here is basileia. And, and basileia doesn't so much refer to a place as it does to an activity. What, what this word is actually saying is that the kingship or the reign or the rule of God much less a place, it's more like an activity. It's, it's the reign and rule of this one, of this God. That, that is what Jesus is inviting his followers to cry out for. Your rule, your reign, your kingship, that's what we long for. It's not talking about a perimeter as much as it's talking about an activity, a, a, a way in which uh, the, the world is, is permeated. If you remember, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over just a page or two. But if you remember in in Matthew chapter 3, we get John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus, related to Jesus, but he was was born before Jesus, and he was a a forerunner. And he he says in Matthew chapter 3, the first uh, interaction that we get with John the Baptist, I mean, he's 
He's a peculiar guy. But, but the first thing that we get from him is, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Then, in chapter 4, verse 17, we get Jesus. And it's Jesus in him going public in his ministry. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we, we have these two characters who both come onto the scene and both of them, in a sense, their first real public words are, are this recognition that the kingdom of heaven is, is, is at hand. It, it, it's right here, the, the, the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew loves this idea of kingdom. And I think the reason Matthew loves the idea of kingdom is because Jesus loves the idea of, of kingdom. Matthew has 28 chapters in it. And one day... We will finish it. I, I promise you, it will, it'll happen. Tw- tw- 28 chapters. And in 28 chapters, the, the word kingdom shows up 50 times. 50 times Matthew draws our attention to the idea of this rule and reign of God. That's almost two times a chapter. Ma- Matthew is prioritizing this, this vision, this longing, that the rule and reign of God, that the kingship of God would come. Matthew, he, he loves that idea, and he likes to use kingdom of heaven. That, that's Matthew's preferred phrase, is kingdom of heaven. If you went over to Gospel of Mark, for example, Mark likes to use the kingdom of God. But don't get confused by that. They're talking about the very same thing. And part, part of what's happening there is if you think about what, what did they understand heaven to be? You know, you've kind of got to get, get back in the shoes of a first century Jew. What, what, what did they think of when they heard this word, heaven? Well, well in the first century, he- heaven was considered the unseen space that God inhabited. There's this consistent idea of God being highly exalted, of God being other, of God being unique. You know, last week when we talked about God's name being hallowed, it's feeding into that same idea that God is lifted up, that God is glorious, that God is different than us, that he's creator and we are created. He is great and glorious. And so heaven, you could say maybe where the sense of where God dwells became synonymous with God. It's like heaven and God were kind of the same idea. It's like this space that is reserved for the creator, for the holy God, this great transcendent one who dwells in heaven. And it had a natural sense of elevation. God is exalted. God is lifted up. So in the Old Testament, you often see the psalmist talking about lifting his eyes or lifting his arms, in a sense, rising, raising his attention to the God of heaven. Uh, When I went to the Holy Land a few years ago, uh, our guide was, uh, we were out on the Sea of Galilee and our guide was talking to us about the fact that um, in, 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 in the first century, uh, that the way that the Jewish mind worked was they viewed the sea, which you know, nobody knew what was down there. And if you read some passages in the Old Testament, man, they thought there were some pretty dangerous things like Leviathan that was you know, d- down in the depths of the water. And their general cultural understanding was that under the sea, down there, it was the place of death. It was the place of chaos. And so like down meant that what, what happened when you died, you got buried. So there was this sense of like downward movement was chaos and death. And then upward movement was, was life 
and, and, and God. And so there was this sense of like a, a directional sense in which up meant God and, and, and down meant death and chaos. And you could add to that the fact that they thought the world was flat, and so there was a little bit more of a logic to that. You know, as, as we've, as you know, scientific discoveries have revealed that the world's not flat, the world's round, you know, up and down, uh, that, that can be a little bit more uh, confusing for us. But I'm telling all of this to say that they did not understand heaven to be God's in outer space. That, that, that is not, they didn't think that God was in outer space. There was this recognition that God's location was this exalted location. It was this uh, unique and special place. And Matthew said, and so that became synonymous. And Matthew likes the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. That the kingship, the ruler, the reign that exists in that space, this exalted space that God dwells in, that that would come. That's, the, that's what he's after, the rule and the reign of God. This cannot be overstated. Uh, I, I already told you Matthew uses it 50 times, and many of them, most of them, are in relationship to Jesus' own ministry or words. Jesus associated what he was doing on the earth as kingdom work. That, that's, that's how he viewed it. I just showed you in chapter 4, that's his first words. He's like, repent. The kingdom of God is here. The, that, 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 that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I, the, the kingdom of God is here. It's the most core sense of what Jesus came to do, and he is telling us that. Now, what would a Jew have thought hearing that phrase? What, what would have raced through a Jew's mind hearing the phrase kingdom of heaven? So I, I, I kind of tried to say a little bit of what a kingdom, it's not necessarily a place, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an action. And I gave you the sense of heaven being an exalted space where God dwells. If you put them together, the kingdom of heaven, what would have gone through a Jewish mind in the first century? Well, um, th th this, this might be what went through their mind. If you went back and went to the Old Testament, which a, a, a devout Jew would know really, really well, they would find quickly that the first reference to any sort of kingship, rulership, reigning happens really, really early. It happens in Genesis chapter 1. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, when God creates man and woman, when God creates humanity, he says to them that he is going to give them dominion over the earth. That, that is royal language. That is the language of kings and queens. That, that is the, the language of ruling and reigning. And as the Bible unfolds, what we begin to realize is that what God did is he created mankind and he said to mankind, you're the crown of creation. You're, you're, like, you're the, the, the best thing that I created here. You, you bear my image and I'm putting you in this incredible role. And your role is going to be to co-reign with me. You're actually going to rule the earth with me, or some would say rule the earth on God's behalf, co-regents, to where Adam and Eve were given this situation, they were given this seat that had incredible opportunity to take the earth and make something of it. You know, when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he tells them to cultivate it. What he's saying is, is here's the raw material, go, go do something with it. You, be the gardeners, develop it. You know, put, put the trees in rows and put the, put the plants where they should go. And like, you, you can make something of this. You have that kind of dominion. You have that kind of rulership. You, you have that kind of a reign. 
And so God puts humanity in this incredible seat of, of, of you know, the kings and queens co-ruling with God on the earth. Well, how's that go? Uh, it, doesn't, it does not go so well. Uh, just another page or two in your Bible, and you find out that the humans handled these responsibilities pretty poorly. Uh, that what happens uh, you know, early on in the, in the biblical story is that they are given the opportunity to continue to rule on God's behalf, to be co-regents, or to have self-rule, to throw off the God of heaven and do it their way. Instead of following his guidelines and trusting him with his direction, they could say, we don't like what you're saying, God, and we think that this is the way to go. This is what we want to do. And that's what we find in Genesis chapter 3, is that uh, Adam and Eve rebel against God and choose instead to have self-rule and to do it their own way. They ended up through their actions then creating an alternative kingdom. This is the result of sin in the world, is that created, it created an alternative kingdom that the Bible sometimes refers to as the kingdom of sin and death, that self-rule for humanity is not God's design and it has not resulted in good things. Now you say, okay, well, that's a really short story and it's really sad. Well, it's not over. Because you run into more kingly language not too much further down the road. By the beginning of the book of Exodus, God has chosen this group of people, but they are in slavery in Egypt. And they are under the thumb of Pharaoh, and they are, uh, they are not in a good way. They are multiplying numerically, but they are enslaved as a people. In those first chapters of Genesis, what we find out is that God does not like this situation. And so God goes and taps a guy named Moses on the shoulder and says, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh that how you're treating my people is not okay. This is not the kingdom that I wanted. This is not the way the world should work. And I want you to go tell him to let my people go so that I can have my people back. Well, you know, Moses, uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh powers up and will not uh, relent. He will not let the people go. Uh, there's these plagues that are terrible and tragic. And eventually... Uh, Pharaoh changes his mind and lets the people go. They get to um, the Red Sea. Uh, I'm cutting cut cut to the chase here. Pharaoh changes his mind and sends the army to get them back. God miraculously takes them uh, through, through the sea and uh, wipes out uh, Pharaoh's army uh, right, right behind them. By, by Exodus 15, you, you see the people of Israel singing. It, it, Exodus 15 includes a, a song. And, and here, here is some of, of what they say in Exodus 15, starting in verse 7. This is what they say to God, to Yahweh. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But Yahweh, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. 
And then in verse 18, it says, The Lord Yahweh will reign forever. So after this interaction with Pharaoh, kingly language starts to show up for Yahweh. And the people of Israel start to realize that this God, Yahweh, is functioning as a king who is mightier than any other king. A couple chapters later, Exodus 19, the nation of Israel is what their name, they, they are given that name, and they, they gather at the foot of uh, this mountain. And at the foot of this mountain, God gives to them his Torah, his teaching. And he gives them the guidance and, and the directives to walk with him and to obey him. And the people hear these words of God and they have a little stumble off the bat, but then they say, yes, we'll do that. Yes, you wrote that down. That's what you say is good. We will do that. Whatever you have said, we will do. Well, how did that go? Like that doesn't go very well either, does it? And you track the, the history of Israel over the next centuries and it just there's some highlights here and there but generally speaking after you know outside of the the spike with David and Solomon even during Solomon's reign it is just a decline into exile into tragedy into it's just terrible and so you look at the nation of Israel you look at Adam and Eve in the garden and you're just like these these people are they're a mess they, they want to rule themselves. God gives them all the resources to walk with him, to follow him, to reign with him. And humans keep rejecting him. But you know, one of the beautiful things about the prophets, you know, if you've read the prophets, they can be really hard to read in the Old Testament. But the prophets see something. And a great example of something where, where they're, they're looking forward and they're seeing is in Isaiah 52, in Isaiah 52, you, you have uh, you know, a, a vision. And the, 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 uh, the prophet, this is, this is what he says in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That is not real time. That is the prophet looking. They're having a vision of the future. And they're saying, oh, baby, it doesn't feel like God is reigning. It feels like we've all rejected his reign. It feels like that happened in the garden. And it feels like it happened with his people. And it's a mess out there. We're, we're, we're in constant rebellion. No matter what resources God gives us, we reject them and turn from them. We choose self-rule over his rule. But if, guys, if you could just see... In, in the future, there, there, is, there is good news. There, there is one, that, that beautiful are the feet of the one who brings this good news. The watchman on the tower can see it coming. God is going to reign. God is going to rule. And they're saying that day is coming. That, that's the, one, one of the things that you see throughout the prophets is this beautiful, hopeful view of the future, even in the face of of the worst of conditions. So for hundreds of years, this is what the Jews are singing in their synagogues. 
This is what the Jews are rehearsing with their feasts is, yes, it's a train wreck. Yes, we have squandered it. Yes, we have been displaced. Yes, we are in exile. And yet, we hold to this promise that there would be a rescuer, that there would be this one who would come and bring good news, that would bring glad tidings, that would actually bring to bear this reign of God on the earth that we keep fumbling away. The promise is that it is going to come. There's going to be one who brings it. Hundreds of years go by. And they keep their feasts and they keep their sacrifices and they keep their temple worship and they keep their synagogue uh, practices and they're singing and they're feasting and they're remembering, but it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. By the first century, the Jews had been waiting for God's kingdom to show up like this, like Isaiah 52, for, for centuries. And that is why when we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus start talking it is hard for us to realize the kind of hope that would begin to stir up in the heart of a Jew, hearing Jesus say these kinds of things. In Matthew chapter 4, you know, he, he gets out the scroll and he, he, starts, he starts reading and he, he, he just, he has these incredible, John, John the Baptist starts talking about the nature of Jesus coming and he starts reflecting these, these very themes. And then in chapter 4, Jesus talks about the fact that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That, that light that the prophets saw, that the prophets said it's going to come, Jesus is like, that, that, that's me. We have accounts of Jesus opening up scrolls from Isaiah and reading these sections and then sitting down and being like, this is me. They, like You guys have been waiting for this and I'm the guy. I'm the one who's come to rescue Israel. I'm the one who's come to bring that kingdom. Your God reigns, I'm here for that. Your, your God rules, I'm, I'm here for that. And so as we, as we you know, the, the third point here is that last word, the word, you know, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So, so look at what happens when Jesus goes public. If we're going to pray your kingdom come, man, it would be really good for us to orient what happens when Jesus actually came, when he physically showed up 2,000 years ago. And it's where we start getting these hints that Jesus is the Christ. And the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which means king. And so we start getting these hints that Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the king who will reign in this coming kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, where we're getting a snapshot of what it looks like when Jesus takes over the world. And if you hop back to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, uh, Matthew says that Jesus immediately does three things. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, he immediately begins calling people to himself, gathering for himself a people. In verse 17 is where he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Next verse, he starts gathering people. Starts getting, getting what we refer to as disciples, followers of his. Starts gathering for himself a people. Then you get to verse 23, and, and, and Matthew says, uh, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus starts off gathering a people to himself. Then he has a teaching proclamation ministry. And then he has a deeds ministry. He, he is healing people. 
And so as soon as Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, he goes right to work, gathering for himself a people, preaching the kingdom, and doing good deeds, healing people. Uh, scholar Tim Mackey says, Jesus goes around acting like he owns the whole place. And it's like he, he does that because he does own the whole place. He goes around telling the sea to stop doing this and telling demons to get out of there and, 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 and healing people with the, you know, with the touch of a finger or with the spoken word. He is, he is changing the game. This is why the whole Sermon on the Mount that we just went through, it is so disruptive because Jesus has the audacity to address your whole life. Jesus doesn't just think he's the king of the world. He thinks he's the king of you. And he's looking at you and saying, Here, here's how your life needs to be reoriented. Here's how your life needs to be sorted out. Here's the good life. Here's the good way. So Jesus, through his words and his deeds, he's exposing what is wrong. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? And then what's wrong with the world? And he is inviting us into something better. Now, you, you might hear this and say, well, okay, but the reign of a new king, like that doesn't necessarily mean good news. Like the reign of a new king could be really bad. It might actually invoke some fear or some concern. Like, is this king, you know, is it good to have a king? You know, years ago, I remember watching the very first... Um, um, Oh boy, Iron Man's one of them. What are they called? The Avengers, the very first Avengers movie. I'm, I'm not too much into it, so sorry about that. Um, but in the very first Avengers movie, if you remember, they, they are fighting back against this supernatural power. And one of the co comments at the end of the movie from Iron Man is, there will be no king here. And you know, Iron Man's point is, it's better for us to rule as a group. We don't want any king. And maybe you hear that this idea of Jesus thinking that he's the king of the world actually leaves you somewhat concerned. Like, who's he to say that? No king here. I'll make my own decisions. I like self-rule. Now, some of you have already walked that road. You've already walked the road of self-rule, and you saw where it went. You, you saw what that led to, and you're like, I'm wide open to some options here. Maybe some, some, other, you know, some new management would be a good thing for my life. But others of us in this room might be looking at this and saying, and I'm not so sure about that. I don't know if Jesus is the guy that I want calling the shots. It would be understandable if this brought a lot of questions or a lot of fear. But I want you to see what Matthew is doing. He is showing us what it looks like when Jesus takes over the world. And he says that Jesus started gathering for himself a group of people, and then he had this teaching proclamation ministry. What are chapters 5, 6, and 7? They, they are all, they, they, it's all Jesus. Three straight chapters of Jesus' instruction. It's like Matthew says, he gathered for himself a people and then he started teaching them about the kingdom. Well, here you go. Matthew chapter five, six, seven. Here's the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what the kingdom looks like. And Matthew is trying to say, if you're nervous about this new king, take a look at this. T take a look at what the world looks like when Jesus takes over. People find themselves healed. People find themselves whole. They find what their souls have been longing for all along. They see kindness billowing out of them. They see themselves helping others. 
They see self-righteousness and hypocrisy being, being rejected and turned away from. Matthew is saying the world that Jesus leads is a world of flourishing in health. If you're nervous about this new king, on the one hand, it's understandable. On the other hand, Matthew's saying, just look. This is the world as it's always meant to be. This is the world with Jesus as the rightful king. See, the king of this kingdom, you say, why is that the world that Jesus leads? Why is it so good? Here's one of the reasons. Because the king that rules this kingdom is on record of loving his enemies and loving his enemies so much that he would actually give his life so that they could be welcomed in. That he would actually give up all of his freedom so that they could be set free. And if that is the centerpiece of the kingdom, then that's going to create a, a, a world and an environment in which people are not taken advantage of and abused, but where people are actually loved and cared for. That, that's the world that Jesus, that's the, world, that's the way the world looks when Jesus takes over. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we are aligning with the biblical story of God reclaiming his world in Jesus and forming a people who will live under the reign of this king. You know, Alistair McIntyre uh, wrote a, a really uh, famous book maybe 35 years ago or something, maybe 40 years ago, called After Virtue. And in that book, th- this, this is a quote that, uh, that, that from, from that book. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part? And as you think about your life, that, McIntyre is exactly right you got to ask yourself, what's the story that you're living in? You know, this story of the world that is unfolding, the primary question is not, do you believe it? This is the story of the world. This is the proclamation of the kingdom, of the good news. The question is, will you trust Jesus? The king is coming back. The king is going to set up his full kingdom. Will you trust him? You know, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, repent, for the kingdom is at hand, you, you might have some baggage with that word repent, uh, or maybe you've never heard of it before ever, but what it means is to turn. That's the fundamental meaning of repent, is to turn. And, and a way to understand that, when Jesus says repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's saying is reorient your life. You've you, you got to reorient your life. You've got to ask questions about your priorities and about how you're relating to money, and how you're relating to food, and how you're relating to time, and how you're relating to people. you got to turn from self-rule, and you got to come over here and be part of the kingdom that Jesus is reigning and ruling. you, you got to change your allegiance. you got to turn from that and come to Christ. You have to trust him and let him reorient you to who he is and what he's doing in the world. That's Jesus' invitation time and time again to turn from self-rule and to actually trust him. You know, we've been working our way through this prayer and we've been using a, a wheel by a guy named John Smed. So just very quickly, you know, our natural way of praying is self-centered and all of those little black arrows in the middle are pointing towards self. So we want to focus on ourselves, make a name for ourselves. We want to bless our plans, build our own kingdoms. But if you notice today's, 
the invitation that Jesus is giving is not bless my plans, build my kingdom. It's actually rejoice in Jesus' reign and announce the gospel. That's what Jesus is inviting us. When we pray, your kingdom come, it's saying we want to rejoice in Jesus' reign. We actually want to reorient our lives to let him be the king of our life. And then announce the good news. Announce this story that is unfolding in in the world. So so where, where are you at with King Jesus? Jesus is saying, I can give you real life, but you have to give up your agenda. I can give you real life, but you have to come follow me. And just like the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, you're invited to follow Jesus. For some, that's going to involve incredibly huge changes. There might be things in your life right now that you're like, man, if I come to Jesus, I know that's a no-go. For others of you, it might involve just a whole bunch of smaller, but they're habitual changes. There are ways that you've lived for decades and you might not even be aware of it. Things like gossip or drinking too much or bitterness, lack of forgiveness. And and these are things that Jesus is going to bring to your attention and say, you might not realize it, but you're not living the whole life. You're not living the full life that, that I offer. And I want to bring you the best life you could imagine. So you could maybe say the million dollar question in light of this part of the prayer is, is the kingdom of God here? Is the kingdom of God here? Well, the answer is yes, but not in full. I mean, look around. There are flashes of Jesus' way of life, but there are many places that are not yet aligned with that. Another way that you could comprehend that is, you could say, if you've trusted Jesus to save you, is the spirit of God in you? And the Bible's answer to that is yes. If you have trusted Jesus to save you, then he has brought you to life through his spirit. But is it true that every crack and crevice of your heart is ruled by the spirit? Is it true that every part of your life has been submitted to what the spirit wants to do? No, the answer is no. And so just like the kingdom of God is here, yes, but not in full, so the spirit of God is in us, but it it doesn't have full reign. We're, We're still holding some parts back. We're still unwilling to let him do his work. Theologians like to refer to this as already, not yet. That there's the dynamic at play. Jesus has been enthroned. Jesus has conquered sin, death, Satan, and all of our enemies. He is ruling and reigning, but he has not fully set up his kingdom here. His rule and reign will come, and it will come in full. So as we pray, your kingdom come, We pray that because we long to see it come in ever-increasing ways until one day, one day soon, it's here in full. Now, as we come to the table, I just want to ask you as you come and think about this, do you want to experience this kingdom? Do you want to have the rule and reign of Jesus, King Jesus, in, in, in your heart and life? Do you want the rule of Jesus in your community Do you want the rule of Jesus in your nation, in in the other nations of the world, on this globe? How bad do you want it? Jesus says all you have to do is come, and that's his incredible, gracious welcome. But there's also an invitation in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? They'll be satisfied. 
Jesus says, those of you out there who are hungry and thirsty for this, this it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out really good. You, you should be hungry and thirsty for this. In Psalm 107 verse 9, we read that God fills the hungry with good things. Are you hungry for this? Are you hungry for the rule and reign of King Jesus in every square inch of your heart and in every square inch of the earth? Well, over the, ne- the, the six Sundays of Lent, so starting on February 18th, uh, we are going to have a standalone prayer time from 6 to 7 p.m., and it's on an off-site, off-site location. More information will come out on this in the next couple days. But we're calling it Gather the Hungry. And the reason why I like the name Gather the Hungry is because hungry people are not picky people. Hungry people are desperate people. And so if you are desperate for the kingdom of God to actually take over your heart, for the kingship of Jesus, the rule and reign of Jesus, to take over your heart, for the rule and reign of Jesus, to move in the lives of the people around you, to move in this state and into the country, in this world, if that's you, then this is the place. And it's going to be six weeks, one hour each time, and it's going to be a space that's relatively unstructured. There's going to be some music and some time to pray. And we're going to provide very few uh, prayer prompts. Uh, but it's a space, if you're hungry, man, you're invited to come. And right now, you're invited to come to this table. This table, this bread and this cup, this represents a body broken for you and blood spilled for you. And Jesus did this at a feast with his followers, with his disciples. And the invitation was like, come, you, you t- taste this. It's, it's only a taste. It's just a little bit. But this, this feast is an eternal feast that Jesus is going to bring. And it's this kingdom that brings flourishing and wholeness to the entire world. And as we come to this table, that's what we're invited to remember. That what Jesus came to do was to bring the kingdom. And he did it through his own death on your behalf so that you could be brought in. Do you trust Jesus to be the king of your life? It's the invitation he puts on the table for you. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, the, the, the Lord's Prayer and for this little phrase, your kingdom come. God, whatever we have in mind as your kingdom, we can be totally confident that it is much better than that. Whatever our best guess is, it, it pales in comparison to what it's actually going to be. So we thank you for this foretaste, for this snapshot of what the world looks like when Jesus is in charge, but we cannot wait for the day when it permeates everything, when it permeates every square inch of our lives, every square inch of this, of this earth. God, we long for that day. We cannot wait, but we thank you that Jesus has won for us a relationship with you, that through his life, death, and resurrection, that we can be reunited with you uh, to the life uh, that you've always wanted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.